I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I changed locations in my new house and hopefully, well, I felt very echoey last time. Jen says we sounded good, but I felt very echoey. So I feel much cozier in here. I need to work on the lighting. It's all overhead and I'm not a fan. Interesting. I have the opposite problem, which is my room is too cozy this time. And so it's new bedroom, but when I just don't wake up because it's so cozy. Oh yeah. So dark. No windows. No windows. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Like nine times out of ten is great, but the one time this week I needed to be up at like seven. Yeah, it was not helping me. No, no, no. Yeah, it's cozy in here. It's good. It needs stuff on the walls. Uh, it's a little too beige and lighting. I need to get a lamp in here or something or some like festive hanging lights or something. I don't know. TBD. I would highly recommend colored LED tape. It is great and you can change it whenever your mood changes so if you want like a nice cool blue there you want like a nice warm amber there oh what are we got going on back there are you Um, next to a laundry machine i'm next to the hot water heater oh hello okay um and normally it's not this bad during the day yeah like at night it's awful but normally it doesn't do this too much when people are home because it's just warm um if it continues, I do have another room option. So. I can't hear it now. Did it stop? It just stopped. Oh, it's going to be a fun week for Jen. <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to move rooms or do you want to keep going? Um, Let's give it a shot. And if it happens okay. again, okay. we'll move. We'll but have I'm a little like, relocate. Yeah, I finally, I got a second screen, which has been a life changer. But it's a lot to move now, and I don't yeah, want to fair. have to deal with that if I don't have to. Fair. Fair. I don't know um, who's first. Do you know who's first? I think you're first this week, Katie. Am I? Dang it. Okay. I Again, I, a I don't couple know of episodes why. ago, you liked going first. I, I'm fickle. I'm a woman. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> okay, great. So I did mine based on the fact that I was uh, literally given it by my best friend who I was talking to. And I was like, I need one because it's around Valentine's Day. And she literally the next day sent me like three articles about this lady. And I was like, that's great. You're the best and basically an associate producer. Um, It's nice to have friends like that. She's the one that taught me about Artemisia Gintaleski. So she's a big fan. Um. So yeah, so we're going to talk about Esther Howland. Uh, Esther, you don't hear many Esthers anymore. Why is that? I don't. Not I big... actually, that's not true. One of my friends in high school, her older sister was named Esther. But that is the only Esther I know. Yeah, it's few and far between. Figure. Let's bring it back. It's a good name. It's a little weird, but I like it. Um, so she's born in 1828 in Worcester. <laughs> Worcester, Worcester, but not, Massachusetts. But spell spell Worcester, Michael. Uh, it's spelled like Worcester or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there's like a C in it. It makes no sense. Okay, great. So it is Worcester. 
Great. Yes. So she's born there. <laughs> um, her dad <laughs> is uh, a big businessman in the town. He owns a bookstore and a stationery store. And uh, she grew up with a working mother in a way because her mom wrote uh, this a housekeeping book, but it was called The New England Economical Housekeeper and Family Receipt Book. Because apparently you didn't need to have a catchy title. Uh, yeah, 19th century titles are great because they're long and they're super clear. Like, you know exactly what you, the book is Yeah, you know what you're getting into. Economical, housekeeping, family receipt book. So her mom wrote this. Um, it was published yearly. Like, it, it was, it kept getting, uh, what's it called? When, uh, is it like Editions? an almanac or like a periodical? No, it just thing? like it was so popular that they were able to keep publishing it for like 10 years. And um, it had classic New England recipes, which I like to think are all clam chowder because that's all they eat, right? That's, Lobster rolls. That's all people. That's all people in New England eat. Is that is... hateful? Sorry. It's cold up there. You got to, you know, get stuff to stick to your bones. Anyway, she wrote uh, a bunch of New England recipes. Um, apparently, they were very well written compared to like the cookbooks of the time. And um, there was a medicine section of, like, household remedies. So she kind of had this helpful Heloise section of, like, how to help with, you know, common ailments of the day, which who knows what those were. I mean, I'm sure there was pretty weird stuff, like put mercury on it or whatever 19th century nonsense <laughs> was going around. But, you know, she was doing that her best. about right. Um, There's also household tips about, like, how to make soap, how to, like, fix your little bits around the house, little do-it-yourself sections, um, get pests out of the house, uh, uh, anecdotes about, like, how to be thrifty, um, and apparently the one fact I really loved was that it also contains an early technique of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and CPR. Okay. And, like, advice in household emergencies. So it was, like, not, it was not a frivolous book as maybe the title would make you want to believe through patriarchal lenses that we've been (laughs) told to think about women's publications um it was very popular and apparently i said 10 years but it actually stayed in print for over 45 years with different titles and editions so she grew up in a house where her mom wrote that book and her dad was able to publish it so they had a very nice income um she is right down the road from mount holyoke which at the time was mount holyoke women's seminary and it was a very new school, women only. It had only opened 10 years prior to her going. So it was a very new thought. And uh, she went, she graduated, she studied grammar, ancient geography, uh, ancient and modern history. And her dad apparently paid $60 a year for her to go there for fuel and lights. Apparently, that's what you had to pay for <laughs> in order to go to school. But she graduated. $60 a year sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know. Get the get the good old Google exchange rate up. What does that equate to? That is a great question. 16... I think later I have a one, but it's like it's like 20 years later. So oh, 1847. Hold on. Let's make sure that's right. 1847, she graduates. Okay. So 1847. So that would mean that. Pre-Civil War dollars. In 1847. Oh my god, we're doing live math on the show? It would be about $1,700. 
Okay, still great. Still a great rate for college education. Yes. Um, okay, so at this time, it's uh, she's 19 years old, and she gets... There's two stories. One is uh, her dad's stationery store gets imported fancy valentines from Europe, which are all the rage, because um, it's a paper crafts or a handicraft that women are kind of... It's one of their disciplines of, you know... The tried and true Jane Austen thing of like, what is she skilled in? What are her attributes? Oh, she speaks Latin and plays the harp and can't do other practical things like fix a squeaky door or things, you know, nonsense like that. But mm-hmm. in the Howland uh, household, she she does all those things and has a little handicraft on the side. So she admires these Valentines. And the other story is that a business associate of her dad gave her a Valentine when she was 19. And she was like... Oh, you bought this from Paris or whatever? Yeah, I can make this. That was a waste of your money. Um, and she starts and to... Div- mm-hmm. Are these... When I'm thinking Valentine's, am I thinking mm-hmm. things similar to what like a Valentine's that I'd get in a store now would look like? Or are they different? Oh, Michael, no. <laughs> like anything from Victorian times, it is ornate beyond recognition. <laughs> But, I mean, it is the basic concept of a similar thing of, like, it's a folded piece of paper decorated with love kind of emblems of the time to open Mm -hmm. and then give to someone you care about around Valentine's Day. So, in the concept of a card given on the day, that was established. But then the, like, true tried and true Victorians, they gilded and laced it up within an inch of its life. We'll get there. Um, so she sees this thing. She's like, oh, that's kind of pretty. I'm into it. I bet I could make these. Hmm. Let me get, let me get busy. Cause I'm a young lady and I'm not married and I got some stuff to do and I need to occupy my time. So she sets up, she gets supplies from this handy dandy fella named her dad who owns all the paper in town, right? <laughs> he owns the paper and the scissors and the ribbons and the ink. So she's like, can I work on this? He's like, yeah, dope. Let's do it. Um, and uh, she starts to mess around with making Valentine's cards. She makes up mock-ups and she puts lace and cutouts and there's even cases of like little paper flowers that you stick on them and stuff. Um, yeah, it's definitely an area of artistic expression is what I found um, for women of the time. So she she has her brother take some supplies or rather some samples along and he kind of s- tries to drum up some orders for her. And she's like, let's see if we get, like, 200 orders. I'd be pleased if I got 200. He comes up um, between him and some other sources. She ends up getting 5,000 orders. Because until this time, there's not really a producer of these val- this style, I should say, that's coming over from Europe. There's no one in America making these at this time. So there's a clear, like, not necessarily need, but there's an alleyway there of, like, oh, I could get in here and kind of negate all of that shipping costs that it takes to get something from france over here Mm -hmm. and like a lot of america yeah and a lot of american taste at this time is very much influenced by europe uh Mm -hmm. so to get it for half the price but to look like the thing was definitely an american ideal at this time um so she's instantly like getting income from these bougie valentines and she's like great let me get some employees up in here. So she employs like four or five women to come every day to her house to help her make them. 
and they start making a range of products, a range of uh, fanciness, for lack of a better word, of uh, ornateness. Um, and she has uh, each of the each of the girls has a task. So I'm gonna put the lace on, and then you put the doily on that, and then you dust it with feathers or whatever they do it's in it's i have some pictures of them they're pretty intense but they think that this is one of the earliest um well i don't know it's it's a full 60 years before henry ford gets all the credit for making an assembly line and she's doing it on the third floor of her dad's house with little paper cards um bad super efficient they like churn them out like i said she starts with just like a couple girls in her house and then they move to a whole floor of the house and take it over as kind of a business. And um, they estimate that she gets between like $25,000 and $100,000 a year, which would be uh, up to about $3 million today. Um, there's also stories of her taking little boxes and she would fill them with paper and scissors and paste and stuff. And she would give them to women in town as um, work from home options. So they would spend all week making valentines and they're, um, you know, at the end of the night when you're just doing your handicrafts and every week a delivery man would stop by, pick up a box, drop off a new box of supplies so they could like do them in their own time in their own home. And she employed a bunch of women this way. So they could... Mm -hmm. Like industrial scale valentine production. At the time, yeah. Yeah, pretty Mm -hmm. intense valentine production. Um... This causes other companies to come to Worcester and start to develop a Valentine card business, um, mainly because she starts getting so much money that, uh, of course, there's some other companies that are like, let's get in on this. And um, Worcester basically becomes the epicenter of Valentine cards, which is like, what a thing to be known for. Um, <laughs> they had a range of Valentines that uh, were, f- for, they cost between five cents and one dollar. And a dollar in eighteen fifty was worth about thirty two dollars now. So if, can you imagine paying thirty two dollars for a Valentine? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Although every I, to be fair, when I was researching my Valentine's Day episode, what it all of the internet suggestions were like you should be spending lots of money on your Valentines because it's all about making it special. You can't just go to CVS and get something. You have to make it truly special, and by that they mean you need to spend lots of money. Yeah, I so mean, okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I, I mean, right. it's just the industry, right? They want. I just, I hate, I hate money. the term. You should do this. I just hate that term as a person. So, it's like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I feel like that's exactly what the internet should, is for. Though should is so relative. It's so ugh. Whatever. <laughs> she also like. I think she genuinely liked the art, artistic aspect of making these cards. Like, it, there was like a business part of her brain but at the same time she was like oh and i can make these really beautiful things and like it's such a sweet sentiment like it's like who would get you know it's making something nice for somebody to give something else like that's a worthwhile trade to be in um so uh the i i have one description of like what they were like in order to uh convey what a victorian valentine was these weren't flat cards they were often 3d productions covered in lace silk embossed paper elaborate cutout pictures of lovers doves and other symbols of romantic love they were designed to be touched and treasured which i thought was sweet 
Um, Today, they're very highly treasured uh, collector's items, and museums try to seek them out because they are such an example of Victorian craftsmanship as well as, like, the style of the day. Um, She introduced the accordion effect of her card, so, like, the fact that your card could be actionable, if you will. Um, All handmade. She also is accredited with having the lift-up card where the message is hidden under layers of lace. So, like, there's stories of, like, she would make a whole bouquet of roses on the card, and each, like, flower you would move away to, like, reveal a word. So these very, like, animated, practical, very intricate, mechanized things. Um, She gets the credit. There's also, like, plenty of women working for her, so she employed a lot of people with a lot of craftsmanship. Um... There's also uh, thoughts that she kind of developed the first uh, lines, like pre-written lines in cards, whereas a lot of them were blank oh, prior to that. That's maybe apocryphal, but she does have a um, record of writing a small little booklet of like a hundred lines to put in your Valentine to like sell separately. So like if you ever had writer's block, you could open her little book and like write a little sonnet to your to your intended. Mm. Or what would you say in Victorian tips? Your betrothed or whatever? Your, bet- your betrothed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as we know, like, the 19th century is a very romantic time. These kinds of suited perfectly with the the trends of the era. And, um, yeah, she she made a bunch of money out of it is the other side of it. Like, any true American industry. Um she incorporated her business and called it the New England Valentine Company. And it's one of the first companies in American history to be headed by a woman. In 1879, she's just booming. She's busting out of that third floor of her parents' house. So she decides to move into a factory. And due to demand and supply and all of that stuff, she merges with a fellow competitor that's in Worcester. Um, she had to eventually stamp the back of her cards with a red H in order to, like, show that it was from her factory because there were so many forgeries and copiers of, like, her style. She was definitely, like, the trend center of the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And it was pretty much, from what I've read, wildly successful from the very start. Like, she saw a really good like I said, avenue to go down and she just like jumped on it. She was helped out by her family and she never really looked back. Um, she had several, I've also found this interesting. Like if you think about Victorian times in what is this? The 1850s through she made it through the civil war. She's now on the other side of it. She had like a really bad knee injury at one point. So she's doing all of this from a wheelchair for a lot of it. Cause her knee mm. caused her such pain that she had to be in the wheelchair And then in her 50s, right after she merged with that other company, she sort of took the money and ran because um, her dad was really ill and she wanted to stay at home and and nurse him. So she kind of takes a step back in her 50s and, like, lets the company run on its own. And the the partner that she had merged with sort of takes over at that point. Um, Most of her original Valentines are on display um, at Mount Holyoke Co- College, they like to admire her as one of their graduates, and they think, oh, she's one of the first, they like to cite her as one of the first American entrepreneurs. 
uh, Mount Holyoke graduates, you know, they're very proud of her, which is sweet. Which is ironic because Mary Lyon, who is the college's founder, banned students from sending Valentines while she was president. (laughs) She was like, those are trifles that we need not concern ourselves with as smart, educated women. That's hysterical. Um, Yeah, they're pretty intricate little things, though. There's one where it's like a little spiral cut in the middle. And if you pull it up, it like turns into a beehive pattern. And you can see a cupid through the middle of it. I mean, they are... Wow. Like Rube Goldberg experiments of paper and and glue and stuff. They're pretty they're pretty phenomenal. But I think I thought it was interesting that the Valentines we think of in a lot of ways and people like to, you know, maybe get negative about the like, oh it's just invented a Valentine's Day is invented by Hallmark companies to make you spend money and it's like actually this really cool lady in 1847 was like, hmm, let me see if I can make that. And she did. And she did really well with it. And yeah. uh, kind of made a whole industry based on the taste of the day. Yeah. And it's, it, it seems like the, the sending of Valentine's predates the industry in a way that like I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. I also love that in all those anecdotes, people really hate give, they, they hate to give Valentine's, but they really like to get them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, oh, I don't want to give. Why do I have to spend my money? And then when somebody like does that for you, you're like, oh, that's really sweet. Like, oh, that's you didn't have to do that. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, it can just actually feel really nice to do that. Anyway, spend yeah. Valentine's Day however you want. You don't have to do anything, but at the same time, if you want to spend a little money, think of Esther. Think of her. You know, entrepreneurial spirit. Up in Worcester, in like cold, cold New England, she's like, I'm going to spread a little cheer with my little paper flowers and my gaggle of gals that paste them on in like (laughs) assembly line fashion. Yeah. So that's Esther Howland. Very cool. I know, right? She's pretty fun. Yeah. Thank thank you, you. Megan, for sending me that info. All right. What you got, Michael? Well, I want to start in the spirit of the day by reading a poem and then jumping into it. Okay. Is the spirit uh, of that day um, Valentine's Day? Yes, but okay. with like a little asterisk behind it. And we'll talk about what the asterisk is in a sec. Okay. Oh so God, here so goes. I'm intrigued. My heart, which beat so passionless, leaped high last night when I saw you. Within me surged the grief of years, and whelmed me with its endless rue. My heart, which slept so still, so spent, awoke last night to break anew. So, you should this join is a poem. Deaf poetry jams or something. I really shouldn't. You should really but... drop a beat on that. It'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jesse Redmond Fawcett, who wrote that poem perhaps should um she's a. you're such a teacher (laughs) (laughs) i can't help it you just see a little classroom of little students going like what else mr danae what else mr d okay sorry (laughs) go ahead i mean that lovingly thank you please get a pocket protector though um it's crossed my mind oh my more than once um so 
Jesse Redmond Fawcett mm. is born in Camden County, which is right across the river from Philadelphia, represent, on April 27th, 1882, <laughs> which is the same birthday as me. So I'm super pumped about her for many reasons. But one of those is she's one of the first famous people who has the same birthday as me who I've encountered in my life. Nice. So stoked about that. I don't think I have anybody. I think my day is mainly no. The main thing I know historically about my birthday is that Anne Boleyn was beheaded on that day, which isn't really an upper when you're trying to like talk about your birthday. No, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a big one. It's a big one. A lot of stuff changed after that day. Anywho. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Poet lady. Poet Same lady. birthday. Same birthday. Mm-hmm. Great start. Mm. Um, she. Silly. Philly, yep. So she's going to move to Philadelphia with her family um, when she's about six. Um, Both her mother and her father are going to pass away when she's really young. Um, So we'll add her to the list of young orphans that populates the Missing History podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Child brides and young orphans. It's our brand. (laughs) Don't you want to spend your listening time with us? Upbeat topics like... Child abandonment and horrible circumstances. Okay, great. Um, But before they pass away, they encourage her to pursue her education. Um, And so she goes on to attend the Philadelphia High School for Girls, which is at the time the top high school in the city for women um, and has a special arrangement with Bryn Mawr College, which we have talked about before on this podcast, Mm -hmm. wherein... Um, the top four members of the graduating class of the high school for girls get a full four-year scholarship to Bryn Mawr. Um, now, Jessie, who is a particularly precocious young woman, is going to win one of those scholarships when she graduates. Um, and in the fall of 1901, she is going to attend her first day of classes at Bryn Mawr. At that moment, however, it becomes a little obvious that she is a woman of color. And at the time, which we talked about a little bit. Is it not a box on the application yet? It's not. So this is like a thing. Well, that's on you, Mount. Wait, no. (laughs) Mount Holyoke was mine. Bryn Mawr. That's on you, man. (laughs) Yeah. If you care so so much, you should put a little box. But clearly you don't. So anybody's going to get in. Is the really awkward thing. So they, and in particular, M. Carrie Thomas, um, who we talked about previously and as we've mentioned is a is that the noted troubling, white supremacist yeah that's the troubling president that you did of that yep. school she is indeed um, yeah which she so, had got she would have gotten along with this lady from mount holyoke that was like no valentines no probably. joy in february it should be gray and sad and studious at all times sorry i think they okay. would probably have gotten along great yeah. all right great. um so M. Carrie Thomas is kind of freaking out that she has just admitted a young black woman to her college. Yeah. Um, and interestingly and oddly, and this is the thing that I was really confused about, is racist enough that they don't want her going to Bryn Mawr and are going to do everything mm-hmm. in their power to get her out as quickly as possible. But on the flip side, not so racist that they just kick her out and don't do anything about it. Oh, they're going to be passive about it? Great. Okay, so, so, right, so they do this weird thing where super racist, won't let her stay at Bryn Mawr, 
but at the same time for some reason feel sort of obligated to give her access to the education that she has rightfully earned at Bryn Mawr. So they sent her to Cornell. M. Carrie Thomas pays for a chunk of her tuition out of her own money to like get her out of there. And it's like this incredibly awful thing to happen to her. Um, but because she is a badass, she goes to Cornell. Um, also, also she... a theme of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Michael saying badass about all the women. All of the women. I mean... It's my favorite. No, it's good. It's applicable to all, many of them. If it not is. Um, at Cornell, she's going to do super well. Um, she gets inducted into Phi Beta Kappa, which is the elite arts and sciences honor society. She's going to graduate in 1905 with a BA in classical languages. Um, and a little while later in 1919 is going to get a master's degree in French from the University of Pennsylvania. So to put it mildly, she is a smart lady Mm -hmm. who is really interested in languages, um, in particular French. Um, And when she graduates, she wants to go back and teach in Philadelphia, um, which at Mm -hmm. the time, Philadelphia does have some integrated public schools. Yeah, we are those integrated. here? This is like early 1900s, 1905, 1906. Oh, God bless, hon. Um, Okay. But they won't hire black teachers to teach at integrated schools. Yeah, that checks out with the brand of the time, which is stupid idiots running everything. Pretty much. Um, So instead, she's going to go to Maryland and then to the District of Columbia, where she's going to end up teaching Latin and French at the M Street High School, which is the college preparatory high school for African-American students. It's also the same place Mary Church Terrell teaches. 20 years earlier so we're just having all sorts of synergy with past episodes go back to the old episodes find her she's pretty great too yes she is um so um Fawcett's gonna end up teaching there um for a little over a decade um in the summers with her breaks she actually goes to France to take classes at the Sorbonne because she is super smart um and really interested in French um while she's teaching, um, she also starts writing. She gets asked by W.E.B. Du Bois to start writing for The Crisis, which is the NAACP's magazine. Um, she starts writing for them in 1912 and is pretty quickly recognized for her skill and gets a regular column called The Looking Glass, where she dives into the complexities of daily life as an African-American in the U.S., but particularly focuses on the experiences of black women. Um, in 1918, she writes, quote, the status of the Negro woman will determine the status of the race. And that's pretty much going to be her pitch from now through the end of her writing career, is mm. that if we want to make things better for African Americans in the United States, we've got to do it for their women. And she's going to sort of beat that drum pretty constantly in all of her writing, um, because at the time, um, and arguably still, there's the difficulty of the intersection between feminism and racial equality in the U.S. that often leaves black women being left out of both of those movements and not having their voices heard. And so she's going to make a pretty compelling case that, like, you have to listen to black women. Um, Imagine In 19... Radical notions. In 1919, radical notions. But (laughs) even for 2019, still radical. Um... In 1919, though, she's going to get offered a full-time position as the magazine's literary editor, 
and so is going to move to Harlem. Um, and once she's there, um, she's going to play a major role in cultivating some of the most important African-American writers of the time. Um, so people like Langston Hughes and Claude McKay get their start writing um, for the crisis, and she's the one who edits them and helps them get their career sort of kicked off. Um, mm-hmm. She's also going to help foster the career of women writers like Nella Larson, um, Georgia Douglas Johnson, and Anne Spencer. Um, and Hughes, when he's writing his memoir, um, is actually going to credit her as being one of the three people who, quote, midwifed the so-called new Negro literature into being. Um, hmm. So that is a lot of credit being thrown her way. Um, and it's, I would say, like, very due. Um, the crisis is one of the central literary elements of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and she, as their literary editor, is going to play sort of a major role in that. We what? should have put my next one and this one go together very much, which is sort of shitty, but that's okay. Well, I'll just do it's a little okay. callback. Yeah, Langston it'll be great. Hughes, we'll Harlem Renaissance. I'm all I'm all up in there in this next one. So <laughs> amazing. Just a little little Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Inter episode synergy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So on top of her editing, um, she's mm-hmm. also writing for the crisis. Um, she publishes poems and short stories. Um, she's translating a lot of black writers from both France and Africa. Um. And she's also publishing editorials um, sort of as the official voice of the magazine. Wow. Um, And at the same time, she's traveling a lot. So she's like a really busy, busy lady in the 20s. Um, She attends the second Pan-African Conference in Paris in 1921. Um, In 1924, she goes back to Paris for a year to study at the Sorbonne. um, And she also visits Africa. Um, And she's going to keep traveling sort of through the early 1930s. she writes about all of these trips and publishes them in the crisis. Um, and a lot of sort of critical voices at the time note how she's paying attention, not just to sort of the like fun adventures of being abroad, um, but looking at the lives of the poor and of women who she meets, um, as well as being very interested in people who are living differently than she is. Um, so basically just like everyone who reads her is like, she's really insightful. She's like a great editor. Um, she's doing sort of really, really good work wherever she's doing it. Wow. Um, yeah. There's no critics? I mean, you just we'll get to the them. critics. There, <laughs> there are some critics. Um, it's like, surely it wasn't just fine, though, because she's an educated woman of color in the early 20th century. They don't like those back then. They don't like, they don't like much of anything back then. So They really don't. Um, and we'll get to it. There, there will be critics and there will be critical things. Um, but at least in this particular part of her work, um, the communities that are reading her work are very appreciative of it at the time. Um, one of the other projects she does um, that she doesn't get as much attention for while well, it's happening, but a lot of scholars recently in revisiting it have given her a lot of credit for um, is that she served as the editor for the Brownies book, a monthly magazine for the children of the sun, which is a publishing project by the NAACP to create a children's magazine um, meant to cultivate, um, what is it? A sense of universal love and brotherhood for all little folks. Um, And the The children of of the sun. Is that what you said? Yep. That's the term that the magazine uses. 
Hmm. Um, I've never heard yeah, of it's. That. I have not either. It only runs for about two years, um, which yeah. is part of the reason it's not widely known. Um, but it's one of the first national publications aimed at children of color. Um, mm. And Du Bois, when talking about it, says the sort of the central point is to make, uh, quote, colored children realize that being colored is a normal, beautiful thing. So the goal behind it is this really wonderful positive. sort of positive, high moral goal. And she is one of the driving forces behind it. She's editing all of the work that's submitted to it, in addition to writing stories, poems, biographies, and articles that go into the magazine. Um, and so even though they only publish um, 24 editions of it, um, it is one of the like best examples of these projects that the NAACP is putting out in the 20s um, with the aim of sort of trying to cultivate um, an educated, very like positive image of what the African-American community could look like um, and trying to sort of put into popular culture positive images of what black life in the United States can look like. Nice. Yeah. So it, I, I, the, some of the, the images of it are really cool, um, in particular because like children's magazines from the early 20th century are kind of like a, they're an interesting genre to look at to begin with. So yeah. these magazines that are like playing in that genre, um, but are trying to do something like very deliberately political with it are mm-hmm. really cool to sort of get a look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the same time that she's doing all of this very busy person, um, she's also publishing her first novel. And this is where the critics sort of come in. Um, so in 1924, she publishes um, There is Confusion, um, which is a novel that follows the lives of two middle-class black women through sort of a series of very, what we would call today, like very stereotypical romantic tropes. Um, so in a lot of ways, it is a novel that is kind of a romantic comedy, um, but is written in response to Birthright, which is a novel by a contemporary white novelist, um, which Fawcett oh, thought um, put forth really, scared really about unrealistic that title. portrayals of black life. I'm really scared about that yeah. title. <laughs> it's I did not look at it. Okay, good. I didn't want to dig into it. Um, so the I bet it's the horrible. Novel that she writes is originally like pretty well received. Um, its reputation hasn't remained as like a piece of literature. Um, it's very, in a lot of ways, Victorian in form. Um, you could sort of call it like a little prissy, a little like overstylized. Um, it's like covered a in lace Valentine and delicate, <laughs> delicate paper flowers. <laughs> exactly. Great. Um, but the thing about it that is really well received, um, and particularly in recent years, has sort of gotten rehabilitated a little bit, um, is that as a novel, it's really looking at how the forces of sexism and racism combine in the lives of black women. Um, and I bet it's, it's not great. F- I no, bet it's like be... Mentos and Diet Coke and it explodes everywhere. Uh, you would be mostly correct in that assumption. Okay. It's um, horrible. Great. The, cool. um, the other really interesting thing is it's one of the first major published works that looks at the lives of an educated black middle-class family. Um, at this point, I mean, most literature written about black people by white authors is obviously dealing really deeply in stereotypes about yeah. black life. Yeah. But 
this is one of the first even written by a black author that looks at this sort of new phenomenon at the beginning of the 20th century of a educated suburban black middle class that's growing up in parts of mm. the northeast um, mm-hmm. and so for that it's sort of groundbreaking in that it's just by a member of that community exactly yeah. um and it's just not something that is regularly seen and she had unsurprisingly a bit of difficulty getting it published originally because the mm-hmm. white publishers like no one's gonna believe that this is what you know black life could be like so it's we're not the gonna publish same it. isn't it crazy how mm-hmm. ish just repeats itself i mean pick any pop culture thing of the past two years that's done well crazy rich asians black panther bridesmaids any female driven movie of weight or i guess box office weight it's the same freaking argument it blows my mind it blows my tiny mind we have learned nothing we have i know well it's just like yeah guys yeah there is no audience yet because you haven't tapped into it but guess what all those people have money and they would like to get some experience. They would, oh my God. Okay, great. Yep. But there's just, there's no data on it. Yeah, because you haven't done it yet. Get the data, man. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and get it. Just What are you going to make $50 it's... billion dollars next year instead of $60 billion? I think you'll be fine. Just, you know, take a shot. Take a tiny little shot. Just make I... one freaking movie or like publish one freaking book. Ugh. Okay, sorry. But you definitely don't have feelings about that. I'm okay. Where's my bear claw? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're hitting the late 1920s now. Um, things don't go super well in the late 1920s. There's like some bright spots for her. But in 1927, she's going to leave the crisis over disagreements that she's having with Du Bois over dire- the direction of the magazine. Um, mm. She wants to continue working in publishing but is unsurprisingly and consistently denied any opportunity to work in the industry because of her race. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's going to return to teaching. Um, she'll be teaching high school, this time in New York City. And in 1929, she's going to marry Herbert Harris, the bright spot in the late 20s. Um, he's a World War One veteran and an insurance broker, um, and from all sources, had a lovely marriage. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah, a nice, a nice little bright spot there. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1929? The, 1929, right? It's like not a lot of <laughs> They're going to have a great next happening. decade. Not going to make a strain on the relationship at all. Nope, not at all. Especially someone working in the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. It's going to go great. Um, <laughs> so 1929 is also a good year for her um, writing career, though. Um, it's when How she publishes. Odd. Right? Okay. It's, it's, it's not it's something you typically hear. No. 1929 great year for this lady she's got everything's going up mm-hmm. um but it's when she publishes her second novel which most people agree is sort of the best thing um or at least the best novel that she writes um mm. it's called plum bun a novel without a moral which plum is like bun? Plum bun yes okay <laughs> Right, and so it's interesting, right? That title is more in the, like, Victorian style of these sort of, like, light, sort of female-centered romance novels. Um, It feels suggestive. A little bit. (laughs) Um, This is not that, though, which is the really interesting thing about it. It feels like a body, like, 
17th century uh, <laughs> Nell Gwynn kind of trope. You know what I mean? That's a deep dive. That's for our audience for sure. Look it up. Anyway, keep going. What? Um, why is it? Why is it a good novel? So it follows the lives of two light-skinned black sisters, Angela and Virginia, um, as they sort of live out two different versions of moving to New York. One mm. of them, um, Angela, she moves to Greenwich, um, passes as white and pursues a career as an artist, hmm. while Virginia moves to Harlem, embraces her black identity, and gets involved in racial justice activism. Oh, wow. And so as a novel, it's tackling this like this huge question of passing, um, and in terms of like passing as an artist, like what is your responsibility as a black artist to be making art that speaks more broadly to the black experience in the United States? Um, and even though the novel is a novel without a moral Mm -hmm. it comes down really clearly on the side that black artists have a responsibility to the broader black community it's a gotcha novel recognize and promote their identity yeah it's just like hey this won't have a moral and at the end she's like ha nailed it (laughs) exactly um her other two novels that she's gonna write in the 30s one is called the chinaberry tree the other one is comedy american style um, stylistically, the really interesting thing is they both play with a lot of um, theatrical tropes. So in terms of like structure um, and the way they approach their topic, they feel like plays, um, mm-hmm. but they're not. And she sort of steadfastly refused to write plays, which I found really interesting. Um, both of them talk about questions of black identity within black American culture Um one of them, uh, the Chinaberry Tree, is centered on um, black suburban life in New Jersey um, and sort of loosely based off of the neighborhood that Fawcett lives in. Um, and the thing I found so fascinating about that is one of the white founders of the NAACP, a woman named Mary Ovington White, who's been sitting in my list of people to look at um, for a couple of weeks now, um, wrote her and sort of asked quasi publicly, like, does this type of community actually exist? And was sort of incredulous that like this kind of quote unquote respectable middle-class black community could exist anywhere, particularly like in the American suburbs. Um, And hint, it totally did. Uh, Not the question you should be asking. No. Um, But both novels get praised because they present positive aspects of black culture and they offer alternatives to assimilating into broader white culture um so in that way even though literary like their literary merits might not necessarily stand out compared to plum bun um they both stand out um in sort of a broader history of black literature for doing that kind of work um which is interesting um she moves back to philadelphia in 1958 following the death of her husband um Mm -hmm. and is going to pass away in 1961 but i promise this is the valentine's day episode so there is a little bit more about poetry i'm going to read another poem okay um so the sort of the asterisks behind the poem i read at the beginning um and the one i'm going to read now is that she is a poet she gets published in the crisis um she writes 
poetry for anthologies and for collections, um, but her own contributions as a poet are overlooked, especially at this time, um, in large part because most authors, both white authors and also black male authors, are really dismissive of women of color's poetry, just very broadly. Um, sort of dismiss it as too sentimental or conventional. Um, but recently, in the last decade or so, there's been sort of this critical reassessment, both of her work specifically, but of other Black female poets of the time, um, looking at the like sort of radical political nature of writing love poetry at mm-hmm. a time when sort of white culture and white supremacy is asserting that Black people are not capable of romantic feelings. So just the act of like writing romance poetry mm. is a form of resistance to white supremacy. Um, and mm. so in that lens, a lot of her poetry starts seeing like this sort of rebirth of appreciation, like, oh no, she isn't just writing these like conventional sort of late Victorian love poems. Like she is actually making political statements with her work. Um, yeah. And the poem that I'm going to read is, and you'll see why is like really clearly political. Um, and it's also really interesting because in keeping with our tie-in theme, ties into the question you talked about a lot with the Madam C.J. Walker episode. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll read it and then we can, can chat about it. Um, so it's called Touche. And most of her poems have French titles, which I loved but made me super nervous because I was going to mispronounce all of them. Touche uh, you got, though. Nailed I got it. that. That's in part why I picked this one. Um, But it goes, Dear, when we sit in that high placid room, loving and dubbing as all lovers do, laughing and leaning so close in the gloom, what is the change that creeps sharp over you? Just as you raise your fine hand to my hair, bringing that glance of mixed wonder and rue. Black hair, you murmur, so lustrous and rare, beautiful too, like a raven's smooth wing. Surely no gold locks were ever more fair. Oh. Why do you say this? Why do you say every night that same thing, turning your mind to some old constant theme, half meditating and half murmuring? Tell me that girl of your young manhood's dream, her you loved first in that dim long ago. Had she blue eyes? Did her hair goldly gleam? Did she come back to you softly and slow, stepping wraithwise from the depths of the past, quickened and fired by the warmth of your glow? There, I've divined it. My wit holds you fast. Nay, no excuses. Tis little I care. I knew a lad in my own girlhood's past. Blue eyes he had, and such waving gold hair. Whoa. Yeah. So, really, like that, I mean, that one is so clearly political. So clearly talking about this huge question that we talked a lot about with the Madam C.J. Walker episode about this issue of, like, black hair and its acceptance in the black community and the sort of the nebulous place that it plays in these concepts of beauty um and she is like not dancing around that like that is very clearly a topic at the center of her work Hmm. Um, that's awesome do you know what else it made me think of did you see hmm. that story a couple weeks or maybe it was i don't know it was in the last year where they found this really old clip of the couple uh, it's only like seven seconds, and it's called The Kiss, and it's a African-American couple in the, like, pre-silent era. It's not even 
it's not even in a story. It's just, well, no, it might have been a part of a bigger reel. But the only clip that survives is like seven seconds of this couple. Um, and they embrace and kiss a couple of times. This is kind of Valentine-y, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was rediscovered and then they did a lot of research about it. But the thing that's so remarkable is that they are, uh, it's a film of two people of color, um, without caricature. They, she's in like a bustled dress and he's in a suit and they just embrace and kiss a couple times and then laugh at each other and kind of are bashful. It seems very genuine. I think they were acting. They were technically acting, but it's not mm-hmm. like the things you typically think of or let alone the images you typically are shown of um, African-Americans on film at that time. And I don't know, it just made me think of that of just like, oh, what that would have done to white audiences. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, they're yeah, not definitely. they're not in all of the stereotype things I need in order to accommodate myself with the fact that someone that doesn't look like me is on screen and I don't know how to deal with this. Um, but it's just really sweet and now it's preserved in such a different way even from its intention of it's just this really nice display even though it's probably scripted and stuff it's like a sweet a sweet small section of a movie that um kind of turned into a different thing through a modern lens which i found yeah. to this in some way that's yeah. really cool no i i hadn't heard about that it's sweet i should out. i should i just made me think of valentine's day and that poem and her her kind of her deal her whole deal we should put a link for it it's really sweet it's cute and it's it's also just kind of an unguarded look it's it's more modern than you would think like it's not all hyper stylized at all so i think that's Mm -hmm. why it speaks more clearly to the modern audiences now that they found it like that's why it became such a big deal it's like oh this is so i don't know it feels like they could walk right off the screen and be fine yeah today but oh, it's so from cool. like 1910 or something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah. It's cute. I love it. Say your name one more time. Jesse Redman Fawcett. Poet, Redmond Fawcett. editor, badass. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. We'll see Happy you next Valentine's week. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History. 